folk singers is a man named John Gorka. Sings such hits as, I'm from New Jersey, I don't expect too much. If the world ended today, I would adjust. But he has one song where he begins in this way, and most of the songs have this kind of theme and tenor running through them. Life is full of disappointment. Oh, and I am full of life. Standing here without illusion, you know, I almost had a wife. He's a man who is suspicious of happiness, is expectant of sorrows. He says, I see couples who seem happy. I wonder how they got that way. Are they blind or kind of stupid? Or are they having a good day? He presumes if someone's happy, then it must be that they're taking something or else that they're naive and they haven't reckoned with the conditions in which they dwell or they just may not be very intelligent because life is full of disappointment and I am full of life. Well, I share that with you as we look at this passage that Dan just read in our continuing study of Acts and our discussion about participating in the mission of God. And one of the things that jumps out to me in this passage is a non-sequitur of sorts, by which I mean something that doesn't follow from what precedes it. You have this situation where Dan started reading, you have Paul and Silas who are on the middle, in the middle of a missionary journey, They're planting churches. They are telling people that God has invaded the earth. He started his reign, that one day everything's going to be consummated and it's going to be fantastic. And for free, you can be a part of it by linking up with Jesus. And everywhere they go, some people are stoked about this news and highly responsive. And everywhere he goes, people are foaming at the mouth with vicious anger and rage at this message as well. And what has happened is these guys are in prison. They've been shackled and they are singing at midnight, praying and singing hymns to God. And what's curious to me about that is that they're in jail and they're being shackled, and I don't think there's any cable television or dish network, and they can't see a football game. And what happened immediately before is that they were in a place, going to a place of prayer, and there was a slave girl. This slave girl had a peculiar gift. A spirit had possessed her, and she could tell the future. And so this slave girl was following them around, Paul and Silas, as they're trying to teach people about the kingdom of God. And we're told that she earns a great deal of money for her owners. She is an owned human being. And she walks around for days, apparently, shouting at Paul and Silas. You can imagine almost a Monty Python-type scene. These men are servants of the Most High God. And she's screeching this. 
Paul's trying to preach, and everywhere he goes, he's got this woman saying, they're teaching you the way of salvation. And, and as true as it is, they are servants of the Most High God, and they are teaching the way of salvation, but it's annoying because he's trying to say some stuff. And so Paul gets good and fed up, which is kind of nice, isn't it? To realize the apostle gets good and fed up, don't you? And so she kept this up for many days, we're told. And finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and he said to the spirit, shut your pie hole, get out of her. And she does. The spirit leaves. She stops screeching and prophesying and telling the future. But when the owners of this slave girl realized that their hope of making money, you don't mess with people's money, their hope of making money was gone. They got furious. They took Paul and Silas, brought them to the Roman magistrate, said these guys are practicing an illegal religion, a non-state approved religion. They're introducing customs and practices. These, these Jews, it was an act of racism. These Jews. They're introducing these foreign religions into our precious Rome, Roman colony. They shouldn't be doing this. And so what happens is, The crowd turns against them. The magistrates order that they be stripped. Now, just do you think about like that means they had their clothes taken off, okay, in front of God and everybody, and then they got beaten. They just set a slave girl free, somebody who was owned by people. They set her free from demon possession, and set her free from being a slave. And here's what they got: nakedy. Beaten, severely flogged, thrown into prison, and upon receiving such orders, the jailer, the jailer is told, make sure these dudes don't escape. And so they put the, the chains on extra tight. Their feet are in stocks. And so the non sequitur is, why on earth are they in prison singing? Praying to God. Why aren't they shaking their fists at God? Why aren't they spitting at God? Why aren't they sullen and filled with self-pity? Why aren't, they, why aren't they complaining to themselves about the injustices that are happening all around them? What is going on here? That's what I want to talk about today. I've been helped in a great way in a, by a book that I commend to you, a new book that Timothy Keller has written called something like Suffering... Uh, Walking with God and Suffering or Pain. It's something like that. You can do your Google machine and find out the exact title. But in it, he brings out this point that Western civilization, that's part of what we are, right? Western civilization has done one thing worse than any culture in the history of the world. That is prepare people to suffer. We have done less than any culture in the history of the world to prepare people for suffering. Because we are increasingly a secular, godless place. And so the only way we know how to think of suffering as a, is, is as a completely randomized event that is merely an interruption to our lives and to our dreams. There can't be any purpose to it because there's no purpose behind all the things that happen. 
And so it's just an interruption. So we're constantly living defensive lives, making sure we don't hurt, we don't suffer, we don't feel pain, that nothing bad happens to us and the people around us. Well, we're novel in that. We're the first culture in the history of the world that's been largely godless. Atheism is a new thing. It's a new invention. It's never existed before. People have always, in all kinds of civilizations, have said they've had a story to explain why suffering comes and to help people prepare for the fact that it comes because everybody has recognized that life is full of disappointment. And the question is, what's the disappointment for? Is there any meaning behind it? Can you respond to it in any kind of way? Or must you just live in terror of it all the time? And so I'm interested as a person who lives in this kind of culture who's fearful like you are of bad things happening to me and to the people that I love. I'm interested to hear two guys singing songs and praying to God while they're bleeding, while their noses are misshapen, while their skin has been filleted, while they're imprisoned, their rights have been deprived them. I'm interested. What makes them do that? And I'd say one thing is this, the big picture here is that these guys realize that suffering is an integral part of a Christian's life and not just an interruption to your life. These guys realize that Christianity says that suffering is an integral part of your life and not merely an interruption to your life. Two chapters earlier, when Paul and Barnabas are trying to encourage the churches there, do you know what they tell them? You want to know how they strengthen the churches and how they edify the churches? They say, if you follow Jesus, you will have a smile that when you flash your pearly whites, it'll make a noise. Ding! Your hair will be so luxurious. Your cars will be so fantastic. You you probably won't want to wear a shirt. You'll be so ripply with muscles, dudes. And women, you'll be so shapely. And your lives, your kids will be so handsome and They'll exceed in everything. 1600s on the SAT. You know, he doesn't say any of that. Here's what he says. It is through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. That's how he strengthens them. It's like, come on, Debbie Downer. Through many hardships, you enter the kingdom of God. But that's what he says. That's what the summary of his teaching was. He reassures them. He reminds them, it is through many hardships that you enter the kingdom of God. The fully consummated vision of life that is to come in the book of Revelation sounds like this. God's going to have a Kleenex and he's going to perennially and forever and ever wipe away tears from your eyes. And mourning, well, there won't be any mourning and there won't be any more death. And there won't be any more sickness and there won't be any more backaches and there won't be any more congestion and nothing bad will happen to your kids. And there won't be any more uncertainty and fear of something of loss. That's in the consummated vision of Jesus making all things new when the old order of things has passed away. But all these guys knew that right now, while Jesus is the king but the world's not been renewed, that suffering is an integral part of our lives and not just an interruption. It's through many hardships that you enter the kingdom of God. It is through many hardships, he says. Did I say this already, that you enter the kingdom of God? I don't want to repeat myself, but it's through many hardships that you enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said the same thing. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. 
So part of the resources that these guys got that enabled them to sing in prison, that enabled them to move towards God while they were severely beaten, was that they had this in their minds. Suffering is an integral part of my life and not just an interruption to my life. See, they had started to think about this. The Apostle Paul had a great deal of opportunity to think about this, and he had some special revelation from Jesus himself, a lot of whispering in the ear, visions and such. Even at the time of his calling, he's told that this man will find out how much he must suffer for my name. He's my chosen instrument. He will find out how much he must suffer. Everywhere Paul goes, he gets his, he gets his eyes dotted and his nose bloodied. He starts to realize, and as he'll say in other places, oh, we're actually one with Christ. We're one with the Savior who suffered. So he says, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also does his comfort. See, one of the reasons that you can sing in the midst of prison You can sing when things are going wrong, that you can keep moving towards God when the worst has happened to you. It's because you have this sense that the suffering that's coming is not not just because God has abandoned you or he hates you. Think about your life when something bad happens to you. Don't some of you say, some of you think, oh, there must be some secret sin in my life. God must be getting me. He must be coming after me and putting it to me. And the Apostle Paul would say, no, he already got Jesus for you. You're unified to a suffering Savior. So when suffering comes in your life, it doesn't mean you've done something wrong. Did Jesus do something wrong? We say he's the only perfect dude and his whole life can be characterized as a man of sorrows acquainted with many griefs. You think you can be acquainted? You think you can be one with somebody who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with many griefs without you yourself being a person of sorrows and acquainted with many griefs? It's through many hardships that you enter the kingdom of God. And so the apostles started to realize that being connected to Jesus means that our life is going to have the same kind of path as him. And so the suffering that comes our way is not punishment. That really helps when you're suffering badly. Because you know you deserve to be punished, eh? Do you know you deserve to be punished? You do. But Jesus was punished for you. And so now, when, the punish, when suffering comes, it's not for punishment, it's for purification. Think of it this way. Think about if you were a pair of underwear. Is that an easy thought world for you to inhabit? Imagine you're an underwear, a pair of underwear. Maybe you're a pair of socks. Maybe you're somebody's T-shirt. And they throw you into a washing machine. And all's going well at first. It's playful. Hey, I'm flying. And then all of a sudden, you start to be drowned. Water's coming in there. And then they pour some liquid in there. And it's like... It's like, this stuff's toxic. And then there's something called the agitation cycle. And you start getting pummeled. All these shirts, you're smothered, you're drowning. You could presume, if you were a thoughtful pair of underwear, the guy who put me in here, the gal who threw me in here, she hates me. Why does she hate me? Why is she trying to drown me? But you know what? She might have thrown you in the washer. He might have thrown that shirt that he's had for 22 years in the washing machine because he loves it so much and he wants it clean so he can wear it again. 
So, so far from, it's just the opposite. It's not that they hate you and so they're throwing you in the washing machine to drown and be agitated and be pummeled and to be suffocated and to be in a state of misery. It's so that you can get clean. It's so that you can be renewed and useful. And see, when you start to realize that's a big part of what suffering is. For a Christian who's following the suffering Christ, you can sing a little bit in it because you realize, oh, it's not random. It's not just an interruption in my life. There's some point in it. God's cleaning me up. God's making me fit for service. God's increasing my trust. He's, he's renewing me in some way, even though this feels so awfully painful. See, Paul had begun with Silas here to realize this whole bit about being truly one with Christ. His, his righteousness comes to us. Our sin goes to him. Our sorrows, when we get persecuted, he feels it. Remember, he said to Paul, why do you persecute me? Paul never seen the guy in his life. Because Jesus felt it when his, when his people got beat up, Jesus felt beat up. And this whole idea of oneness made Paul say, oh, so the path that Jesus took is the path that we're going to walk as Christians. And here's the dynamic. Suffering, 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 glory. That's the path of human life if you're a Christian. You suffer, and then there's glory. You get formed by suffering. Jesus himself, a sinless man, we're told, in the days of his life on earth, were filled with loud groans and cries to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, you reckon if you're the son of God in human skin, fully human, fully God, and you have to suffer in order to learn obedience, you've got to trust God in the middle of it looking like God has turned his back on you. You think we're going to be able to walk through life and not have to suffer to learn obedience? I know it would be nice if somehow or another God would give us a fortified gummy bear uh, righteousness vitamin. You give your, God, your kids these sometimes? Not righteousness vitamins, but you give them vitamins, right? You're gummy bear, they taste good. You take it, you're fortified. I don't know. Or some kind of, some kind of righteousness smoothie in the morning. You know, you put your kale in there and your flaxseed oil and then and this like special juice that, that's all of a sudden going to make you just incredibly loving and kind and patient and trusting and just a walking hallelujah from head to toe. Woo! But see, God doesn't do it that way. You don't get to take a pill. Jesus didn't get to take a pill. He had to swallow the bitterness of being rejected, of seeming abandoned, of feeling the loss of people that he loved, of crying out, please take this away from me, but not letting it get taken away from him, of suffering things he didn't deserve. And so the apostle said, this is the path we're going to walk. And it can sound awfully downer, but it's the best kind of truth. Truth has hard edges sometimes. But your life, if you don't think that you're on the same trajectory as Jesus because you're one with him, then you're constantly going to be living defensively and you're constantly going to be dismayed. Why is this happening to me? (laughs) This guy's, I'm sorry. We've got some good chuckles here on the front row, little guy. But you're going to ask yourself, why is this happening to me? Why is God hating me? Why is God abandoning me? Why is he singling me out and not everybody else? And it's hard. 
And if you start to say, well, no, 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 this is God's method. So when I face trouble of any sort, I'm jobless, I get a bad diagnosis, you got arthritis, you got a broken relationship, you're having mental struggles. All these things are the environment where you're learning to walk with Christ through the furnace. Suffering leads to glory. These apostles had the resources. They had the resources to sing in prison because they knew that suffering is integral to their lives and not merely an interruption. They knew that part of being joined to Christ is that their path would be a path from suffering to glory, just like his, that the agitation of being in God's washing machine was not punishment, but it was purification. It was cleaning. You know what they also knew, and Paul speaks of this in Corinthians as well, this whole idea of, When we suffer and then Christ comforts us, it helps us to administer comfort to other people. One of our elders, Matt Jelly, just had himself an exciting four-day migraine headache. I say that sarcastically. That's a horrible thing if any of you have had migraines. What a horrible, horrible thing for the whole family. And after it was over with and he felt like he had been in a war and somebody probably had beat him with a bat, he said, man... I feel so much for people in our congregation who have chronic illnesses. His headache went away. There are people in our congregation whose mental troubles don't go away, whose chronic fatigue doesn't go away, whose pain in their joints never leaves. And his suffering tenderized him. That's why you don't, do not go to, you, if you go to a counselor someday, or you want to talk to somebody who's been run over by a car and who's been hit in the nose and who's been had their knees busted. You want to have somebody who's had their heart trampled on. That's who you want to be your counselor. Because they're going to be tender. They're not going to have pat answers because suffering tenderizes us. And again, it'd be nice if God could give us a compassion pill in a gummy form so that we would just be gentle to everybody. But often, it's just through our own suffering, through our own deprivations that we become the kind of people who feel for other people when they're hurting. And then we can be the brokers of God's compassion. The apostle also had this resource that allowed him to sing in prison because he knew not only that it wasn't just an interruption of his life, but integral. And he knew that this was the kind of thing that was, that was built in by design, that we're going to suffer and then glory, that we're attached to Christ, so suffering is going to come, but it's going to make us more compassionate. He also knew that there was no better tool for weaning us off ourselves than great deprivation of suffering. You know, in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, he says this, I don't want you to be uninformed about the hardships we encountered in Asia Minor. In fact, we were were far beyond our ability to endure. We were utterly and unbearably crushed. And in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened so that we would not depend on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, Paul thought, when I'm in this state, when I'm lying in a heap on the floor, and I think I'm about to die, and I can't stand it, and it's way more than I can handle, he said, oh, this is why this is happening. So that I would rely on God who raises the dead. See, that's his hope for everything. So that I can rely on God who raises the dead. 
We have a man in our congregation who's legally blind. And you know what he told me? Would you want to be legally blind? Doesn't that seem horrible? You can't drive anywhere. You can't see good. You can't, you can't do things as easily. You can't recognize faces so well. You know what he told me? I would never trade this blindness that has happened to me. And you hear that and you go, oh, come on now, super spiritual guy. Come on, seriously. But you know what he said? He said before, I was an arrogant man. I was hard charging. I was about making money. I was arrogant. I didn't care. I was, I was keeping God at bay. And now I've learned about dependence. I have to count on people. I'm a grown man. I've got to count on people to give me a ride like I'm a kid. I have to depend on God in a magnificent way, and I wouldn't trade it for nothing. The Apostle Paul knew that to be the case. And if you know it to be the case, when trouble comes your way, that doesn't mean you're just going like, to sing songs of delirium or you're euphoric. But you're going to move towards God because you realize it's not just an interruption. This integral to my life, God's up to something. He's cleaning me. He's making me. He's letting Christ's life flow over so that one day I'll know Christ's glory. So I'll get to participate one day in this new earth where the tears are wiped away and mourning's gone. He's creating sympathy in me for other people. He's creating humility in me. And yes, it may feel like because I have so much arrogance within me, because I have so much desire to control everything about my life, and I have the illusion of control because I live in a time when we can control so much. It feels like. That when he, when he weans me off of that control, it may feel like I'm the siding on a house and the pressure washer's hitting it. And it's like a fire hydrant coming at you. Because the mold of your conceit and the the mildew of your arrogance is embedded deep in the pores of that siding. So the water must come fierce to wean us off. The apostle knew that God was up to stuff in his suffering, so he could sing. He could sing in prison. But notice this as well. While they were singing, about midnight, they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners we're listening to them. I find that a very interesting little phrase. The other prisoners were listening to them. You know, what were they thinking when they were listening? To them? Were they thinking, come on, super spiritual guys? Or were they saying, come on, shut up, we're trying to sleep? Or were they like John Wesley was when he saw Moravians singing hymns on a ship when he thought it was about to go under, and he was terrified, and they were calm? He was freaking out, and they were singing hymns to God, and he said, I want what they got. How are they able to sing to God right now? I need me some of that. Steve Brown has said this. He says, every time a non-believer gets cancer, a Christian is given cancer too, just so God can show the world the difference. Every time a non-believer, a pagan, loses their job, a Christian loses his job too, just so the world can see the difference. Does that seem mean? Yeah, it probably does. But boy... When you're in a world of unassailable and unavoidable suffering, it sure does help to realize that part of what we're doing is bearing witness to this fact that we hope in resurrection. That we depend not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead, which means that sometimes we're going to die, and people around us are going to die, and everybody's going to die. But that's not the end, because we believe in resurrection. 
We believe in the reversal of things. We believe that sad things can be made untrue. We believe that horrible things can be redeemed for good. That everything can be working out for advantageous and beneficent purposes in the people that God loves. So think about that. I think about John and Katie, our chief deacon. I don't know what you call them, chairman of the deacons. And his wife, they're in Uganda right now. Some of you are keeping track. They're, they're adopting two Ugandan children. They already have like 16 kids, four. And they get there. And Katie eats something she's allergic to. She didn't know she was eating something she was allergic to. She accidentally ate something she was allergic to. And then she's about to die. As I'm being a little crass. But she had a horrible reaction. She was stuck in bed all day. So they're in this room with these two kids that can't speak the language. And they're adopting orphans. And don't you imagine there's a party that wants to say, Come on, God! Orphans! We're in Uganda! Can you please keep me away from allergens on accident? She bore witness. She and John bore witness as they, they counted on God. They recognized he must be up to something. I don't know what it is. She's feeling better now, I think. You can ask their parents and siblings later. But you see, there's so much about our lives that gives opportunity to bear witness to the world as horrible things are happening what do we believe to whom have we entrusted our lives do we believe that he is able to guard what we've entrusted to him to that day do we believe that we will resurrect from the dead do we believe that eternal life starts now but ends never that death is something we pass through that no harm can come to us that isn't from the hand of god that has some good purpose and that he'll show the world a witness through us. If you start to believe that stuff, you can sing in prison. I'm going to close with this, a couple of practical things. You start to believe this stuff. Suffering, integral to your life. It's not just an interruption to your life. That you're on the path that Jesus was. Suffering leads to glory. That suffering is not punishment for those who are in Christ, he's already been punished for us. It's purification. It's sympath- it helps us to be sympathetic. It helps us to rely on God who raises the dead. It helps us to bear witness to the reality of what we believe. You know what it can make us do as people? It can help us, as we believe these things, to not live nervous, defensive lives. I saw a billboard the other day that said, Shield yourself. It was an advertisement for telling people to get a flu shot and a shingle shot, I think. And, and do that. That's great. I'll probably do the same. But I think that's sort of the, the Kool-Aid that we all drink. Shield yourself. The main goal in your life is to protect yourself and other people from harm. Make sure you've got plenty of firearms and plenty of canned goods. Make sure you've got plenty of money stocked away. Make sure you don't take any risks so that anybody could get hurt. Do you know, I said earlier, Western culture has done a worse job than anybody else in preparing people to suffer. We also, do you know, we have more probably mental illness and more neuroses than anybody in the history of the world. I don't know if that's true, but it seems like it's true. And you know what I think it is? Because we don't want, nobody avoids pain like we do. And so sometimes that most of our mental problems that we have, and I've had plenty and have, is that we're trying to avoid real pain, and so we create fake pain within us. That's a lot of what our anxiety is. 
We're fortifying ourselves from real pain and we have all this fake pain inside of us, but it feels real to us. But to realize that we can live openly, that we can realize that nothing is going to happen to us that God doesn't want to have happen to us and if He lets it happen to us, it's for our good and for the good of the world. We don't have to live protected lives. When we go to this, when we go to plant churches, we're going to lose. We're going to lose people we love. You know, the people, it's not going to be the people we don't want to go that are going to go. It's going to be the people we want to go. Okay. We're going to lose giving units. That's a terrible way to describe human beings. We're going to lose people we love. We're going to feel birth pains. We're going to have postpartum depression as a congregation probably. Well, why would we do that? Why would we do that? Well, because we're living openly. We're not defending ourselves against pain. And here's why. You know what happened to the guys singing in prison? An earthquake came. Doors open. The Philippian jailer draws his sword because he's freaked out. He thinks everybody's gone. He's going to run himself through. He's abandoned his duty. And Paul says, wait, 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 wait. Don't kill yourself. We're here. And the guy's terrified, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your whole family. And he teaches them about the word of God and the kingdom of God, and here's what it says. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When we plant a church, when we share the gospel with people, when we go out into the world carrying Christ, bearing his death in our bodies so that other people get life, we get to multiply joy. A slave girl, because of their suffering, a slave girl was set free. She encountered mercy. Yesterday, a congregational move of deacons and men and children put a new roof on a house even during the government shutdown. Mercy was given because a church was here. We don't have to live protected lives. Because God is always there. You're going to suffer, but he's never going to leave in it. Nine years ago today, I was released from the hospital. A two-month ordeal, near death sometimes. It was horrible. I do not wish ever to experience that again. Lord, hear that? It was horrible. Probably more horrible for Kathy and the boy. The boy. There was only one boy at that point. The other one was being baked in the oven. And you know what I learned about that experience? Up and before then, I had some severe neuroses, and they're, they're, yeah, they're, I'm all healed now. I was incredibly anxious, worried about so many things. The church was overwhelming. There's so many needs, so many concerns, so much to be anxious for. Very perfectionistic. Da, 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 da. And one time my best friend said to me, you know what needs to happen to you? You just need something bad to actually happen. I was like, shut up, you're not my friend. <laughs> because he was listening to me spill out all my anxieties and all my worries because I was trying to keep everybody happy. Trying to keep everything working, everything up on the way it should be, and thought it all rested on me. And he said, You know, I think what needs to happen is just some true collapse. That sounded terrible to me. I thought I had seen plenty of suffering in my life already, and I do believe I have. Well, that happened. And I think I, afterwards I found a lot of freedom from anxiety in a way I never had before. 
something broke in me. A different kind of trust in the God who raises the dead, because I got raised from the dead. A different kind of expectation. The suffering is not just some kind of interruption to your life. It's integral to it. This is part of what we're up against. And so, yeah, I don't want any of it. I'd be happy if none of us ever suffers again. I hate suffering. I hate trouble and I hate disappointment, but our Savior, the way He can be identified, listen to Gillian Welch. She says, I'll know my Savior when I come to Him by the marks where the nails have been. Our Savior has scars. And so will you. But our Savior will never leave you while you're getting your scars. That, if you believe it, will keep you singing and moving toward Him, even when you're in prison. Let's pray.